Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We're kind of ending the more doctrinal or we would say indicative half of this letter. Indicative meaning Paul is making statements that are true. He's declaring the gospel over the church in Ephesus and other surrounding churches. He's not so much giving them imperatives, which is the second half of Paul's letter. And what you'll see, and we'll say this again in the spring, is that the imperative, the commands of this is how you now follow Christ. This is how you apply it to your speech and your relationships and all these different areas of practical Christian living. They're based on the indicatives, the good news of what Jesus has already done for us. Okay, so I think it's fitting that he's coming to the end of this like doctrinally rich and heavy half of a letter to a church, and he ends with a prayer and a benediction. You may notice that. First, he's praying for the believers that they would experience certain things, and then this benediction is like, and the Lord bless you, and we bless the Lord in these particular ways. So this morning, we're going to look at this prayer that includes, again, both the petition for the people and then the the benedicting, the blessing of the Lord. And we begin with the reason for Paul's prayer. So you notice verse 14 starts with these words, for this reason. And if you're like, well, what's what's his reason? Like if you read the verses right before that, you may be like, I'm not really picking up on this reason that he's praying for the Ephesian believers and for us in essence. And if you look all the way back to verse one, notice that also starts with for this reason, which is kind of fun. So anybody ever prayed and you start praying for something very specific and your mind starts to wander and you're like, wait, what what was I praying for? And I'm kind of off on this rabbit trail. So I feel very encouraged that the Apostle Paul took a 13-verse rabbit trail in Holy Scripture. Because he started praying, he says, for this reason, and he mentions the Gentiles, and he's like, and I want to thank the Lord for what he's doing in these Gentiles who were outsiders to the covenants, and they, they weren't part of the covenant people of God, the Jews, but God has now made them one in Christ. And we looked at this last week that not only are they co-equal in the blessing they receive in Jesus, but they're actually united together in the blessings they receive in Jesus. So he takes that little sidetrack and then he's like, okay, where was I? Verse 14, right, so for this reason. And if you're wondering what the reason is, you kind of have to go back to the first two chapters of this letter as we've now got chapters and verses. 
and realize he's just rehearsed the gospel. He's rehearsed the good news of Jesus, focusing particularly on the resurrecting power of Jesus and also the reconciling power of Jesus. That's been kind of two focal points of his doctrine, his teaching, is one, we serve a God who has the power to raise the dead and to raise the dead spiritually to new life in Jesus. And we serve a God who has the power to take enemies and make them friends, to make them one so they are no longer hostile. And you see the end of chapter two, because this is kind of what he's referring to, for this reason, at the end of chapter two, he's illustrating the peace and the unity that we found in Jesus. And he uses these three metaphors. He says that the kind of peace that we have together, Jew and Gentile, together in Jesus is like, it's like we're, we're citizens of a new kingdom. It's like we're members of a new family. He says it's like we're living stone stacked together of a new temple. And so he's illustrating this closer and closer nearness both to each other and also to God. That God is not just our king over the kingdom. He's not just the father over the family. But he says he's literally this God who is with us, present in us. And the way that God dwelled in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, now we are the temple and God dwells in us. So here's the key that I think is leading Paul to pray this. First of all, in verse one, where he starts out, and then when he comes back to it in verse 14, he's just meditating on it. He's overwhelmed by the fact that salvation in Jesus is incredibly intimate and personal. This is not just a religion as other people would practice religions and say, well, we do certain things and we believe that we're getting certain personal, uh, intangible benefits. Like when God says, I forgive you your sin, he, he does, but how do you experience that personally, like in relationship with God? You're like, I believe that, but what does that feel like? Or, or we believe very often that we have these uh, like eternal blessings in Christ, and we do, like eternal life, like receiving all the riches of Jesus, but that can feel very impersonal. And now what he's saying is you don't just get intangible gifts. You don't just get future gifts. The greatest gift of the gospel is you get God like in the interior of your person, you get all of God. And here's kind of this theme that I hear him sharing now in this prayer and then benediction. He's saying salvation brings the fullness of God's power and love into the interior of our lives, both individually and collectively. Salvation brings the fullness of God in his power, in his love into the interior of our lives. And you'll see this um, point too, kind of with the, the requests now of Paul's prayer. So you see the reason he's reflecting on the personal, intimate nature of salvation. But now look at these requests. And if it's confusing because you're reading this in Paul, if you read Paul, Ephesians is, is particularly tricky because Paul likes dependent clauses. He likes participles. He likes infinitives. And they're all stacking up on each other. And you're like, I, I can't figure out what's the core of what he's saying. But here in our text, you can find three central requests by simply looking for the word that. So he has the word that, or it's the Greek henna, in 16, 17, and 19. And what he's saying is, I'm praying for you all that, one, two, and three. That what? Well, first of all, verse 16, he says, I'm praying for you that you would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to ask ourselves, like, where does, where does your strength come from? And you think physically you could be like, well, I go to the gym and I lift heavy things. And then I try to eat clean 
and I get strength. But he's not asking about physical strength per se. He's asking about a strength for life. In other words, how or where do you find the strength to swim against the current of culture? How or where do you find the strength for enduring hardships in your physical health, your mental health, your financial health, your relationships, your work or career, where often things seem to be going backward or sideways instead of forward as you had dreamed and hoped and planned? Where do you find the strength for that? Where do you find the strength to keep your heart and your mind focused on Jesus when there are so many distractions and so much pain? Before I get to the right answer, I'll point out, like, Christians love formulas. Have you ever noticed this? It's just like some of the best-selling books in Christian literature are like, just do X, Y, Z, just pray X, Y, Z, just talk to yourself and tell yourself X, Y, Z, and you will find strength and hope and encouragement. But that's not what Paul says. It's not what any of the apostles say. It's not what Jesus said. It's not like follow the three steps or follow the 12-step program. He says, your strength comes through the Spirit. It's a personal strength. So look at verse 16 again. He's basically saying we need to be strengthened in our inner person through the presence of God's Spirit. Verse 17, he literally says we need Christ to dwell in our hearts. And it's interesting here that the Greek have two main words for this idea of someone dwelling in, and usually it's like a a house or a stable or a tent or whatever. There is one word that means to dwell as a sojourner, which is not a word we use a lot, but like a visitor. Okay, so for a couple couple days over the holiday, we'll go out to see family in San Diego area, and we're going as sojourners. We're taking our, you know, our little bags, and we'll unpack some stuff, and then we'll leave after a couple days. There's another word that means to move in. And it's like, I'm residing here now or taking up residence here now. And which of those words do you think he uses for this dwelling of the Spirit? You know, at a very practical level, you all probably have friends or family that you're like, when, when they come to dwell with you, you're hoping it's like two or three days and you see the bag that they brought and you're like, okay, good. You're still living out of your bag and you're still going to leave. Anybody ever had this experience where you think someone's coming to visit you for a couple days, which you're cool with, and then you find out they're, they're unpacking like into your drawers. Does anybody unpack into drawers at the hotel, by the way? Some of you do. Um, that's funny. I love that. But like we've had that experience where we're like, okay, yeah, you can stay with us for a couple days to kind of bridge the thing to this. And then you, you come to find out like they've moved into your medicine cabinet. They're putting stuff away in your kitchen cabinets. And you're like, oh, I, I saw that going very differently than what's happening here. So the word that Paul uses here is that second, the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus is moving in. And I actually think like that's not bad news. That's good news because like because he's coming and he's unpacking everything. He's like, I'm taking up residence. So it's good news because if we learn to pray for that presence and depend on that presence and follow that presence, he's not just going to pack up and take off in a few days or a few weeks or when something goes a little sideways in our relationship with him. He's like, no, I'm, I'm here to stay. This power is not only present, but this power is permanent. Now look to that power 
to be strengthening you for the challenges of life. So that's his first request, that you be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Then secondly, the next time he uses the word that, verse 17, he's saying, I'm praying that you also be fully able to comprehend the love of Christ. This is verses 17 through 19. So look again, he says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, again, there's a lot of dependent clauses. There's a lot here. I just want to begin with an observation that he's saying, I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge, which is an oxymoron. Like, how do you, how do you know something that surpasses knowledge? And I think I could illustrate this this way, that, you know, that web space telescope that we like shot off into space and it keeps going further and further out and like looking in different directions and taking these incredible photos and sending them back where we can look at them. I was skimming through some new ones that came in again and just like mind blowing beauty and immensity of like everywhere this thing looks like a little dot becomes this whole world of color and nebula and exploding galaxies and it's it's incredible so I, I think of this kind of this way that the the knowledge that the telescope is sending back is it's true knowledge it's it's factually correct but it is not comprehensive it is not exhaustive and kind of in the same way we don't know God exhaustively he's infinite he's eternal He's immense, but we do know him. We can know him truly. And as we continue to walk with Jesus, as we're invited into this personal relationship, we continue to learn more and more. It's not like you got to the end of Jesus and you're like, okay, I figured out the whole person of Jesus. It's like, no, it's like in every little slight direction you turn and you go deeper with God, you learn more and more of this uh, surpassing knowledge character. And notice he's like, I I just want you to, he uses two words here. I want you to comprehend, which is like to lay hold of or grasp. You could like to comprehend something, you could literally like lay your hands on it. There's that way of like grasping information. But that second word, know, where he's like, I'm praying that you know someone who surpasses knowledge. He's using a word that is experiential knowledge. Um, So it's used of the, like, the knowledge of another person, like, in a physical or intimate relationship, not just cognitive knowledge. Like, I I know facts about God. He's actually inviting you to know, to experience relationship with God. And where does that kind of comprehension start? Well, he says it starts with being rooted and grounded in Jesus' love for you. And it's kind of an interesting, again, like Paul loves to mix metaphors. So he's using an agricultural metaphor and also an architectural metaphor. Like rooted in Christ's love for you is the picture of like the tree that is sending down its roots. You know, and if you have a, like an actual tree, somebody just came by the other day and planted two new little spindly trees in our front yard because we had dead trees. And I was like, I, the ground is so hard right now and it's so cold. I just don't know that those roots are going to go anywhere. So you have the picture of like roots trying to go into hard soil or really mushy, wet soil versus like going down into the soil of Christ's love and just going deeper and deeper and spreading out and becoming healthier and healthier as they're growing in that kind of soil. That's the first metaphor. And then he says grounded, which is the picture of laying a foundation. 
And he's saying, if, if your foundation is laid on something unstable or unreliable, well, you've you got other things to worry about, especially in the storms of life as they come. You're like, does this thing last? Does my life last if, if it's built on certain foundations? But he's, he's inviting you. You can build your life on the bedrock of Christ's love for you. And then practically, if you don't have to worry about your roots being stable and deep, and you don't have to worry about your foundation being stable and reliable, do you see how that frees you to experience love and joy? Because you're not obsessing about thinking, is this thing going to last? Be like this, okay? If you, you're going on your honeymoon, you've, you've reserved like this really nice beachfront condo, and you walk in, the front desk says, hey, we found out it was your honeymoon, so we've upgraded you to the penthouse. So you're up on the 40th floor, the most incredible views of the ocean and the beach from, from your room. Um, there is one thing we should probably let you know. The, the uh, foundation of the hotel has been eroded for the last number of months by the tides have been coming in and kind of washing away underneath the hotel. And um, we had some engineers look at it this week, and they actually believe tonight may be the night this whole thing comes down. Have a nice night, you know? Like, how, how free would you to be like, oh, sweet, let's, let's just go enjoy our love. I, I think it, most of you would be in the back of your heads like, um, no, I think we're good. I think we're going to find somewhere else to stay tonight. And... Practically, we can do the same thing where we're building our lives on some other foundation that is not reliable. And they can always be distracting of like, what if this caves in? What if I'm living for the wrong thing? Versus the invitation to build your life on the love of Jesus for you. That love is not going anywhere. I mean, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it what? The, the unstopping, the never, never giving up, never stopping, unbreaking, always and forever love, and you're building your life on that foundation of something that is completely faithful to you, then you're liberated to do what he says next, which is like to start looking around and exploring the breadth and length and height and depth of that love. You're like, I I'm free. My, my mind is clear. My heart is settled to just begin exploring the love of Jesus for me. And it's possible that Paul uses those four magnitudes, breadth, length, height, and depth, simply to communicate something of God's infiniteness. Like every direction, every dimension you turn, his love and his other character just goes on and on and on forever. But I, I would invite you, whether you're doing a gospel community group this week or just digging into some of these questions, there are different places in Scripture that will call you to meditate on, for example, like the wideness of his mercy or the depth of the sacrifice that he was willing to make or the height to which he raises you up in Christ. So there may be some specific things he means here. At a minimum, he's like, it's infinite. It just goes on and on and on in every direction. Get into God's love, build on his foundation, root in his soil, and feel the joy of just constantly looking in to Christ's love for you. So be strengthened with the Spirit's power. That's his first request. Know the love of Christ more and more. That's his second request. And then thirdly, verse 19, he says, my third request is that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. 
And the idea here is not that our tiny little finite lives can contain the fullness of God. That'd be like going to San Diego with a ball jar, scooping up a little bit of the ocean and coming back and being like, I brought the fullness of the Pacific Ocean back to Denver with me. Well, I I didn't because I'm containing this much of it. But the idea is that the fullness of God fills every part of us. And I, I say that in, I think his prayer is in contrast to two things that we often do. One is we give God part of our lives and we keep part. Kind of like, I want autonomy over my body or I want autonomy over my time or I want autonomy over my money. And so it may be like, God, I'll, I'll give you this time to serve at the outreach on Saturday morning and then go to church. But my vocational time throughout the week, I don't really understand how that connects to the gospel or to your word or to Jesus. And so I'm going to keep my work day for me. And I'll put a few dollars toward missions, as you've called me to do. But the rest of my money, I kind of think of as in mine. Or God, you can have some of my love. But to be honest, there are other things that I have a great affection for, a great fondness for. And I'm not willing to let go of those things to have only your love. Or I'll, I'll be a Christian, I'll identify as a Christian, but I really want the freedom to identify myself how I want, to find my identity, to seek my identity in I want. So what you see in that first example is if I'm giving God part and I'm keeping back part of whatever for me, God isn't really filling all of me with all of his fullness. God is present, but he's being crowded. Like we are pushing him out, either of thoughts or affections or actions, responses, So we could give God part of our lives and keep other parts. Or this other thing we do is we let a part of God in, but not his fullness. You know, I have conversations like this often where someone will say, you know, I love so much about Jesus. Like the picture in the New Testament of Jesus where he's he's loving, he's welcoming, he's hospitable to sinners, he's forgiving, he's bridge building. But but I don't like the God who is down on, like kind of judgy confronting sin, harsh seems like, like the wrath word that comes up sometimes in scripture. I don't want that part of God. Or we're like, of course I want the love of God, but I want the ability to define that love how I want rather than accepting his definitions or his illustrations of what like self-giving love does. So you're like, I don't want to sacrifice that much, but I want to be able to call it love. Um, and frankly, some of you may pick and choose this way where you're like, I, I, want, I want the conservative, traditional sounding parts of Jesus or God, or I want the progressive, liberal leaning parts of Jesus. And you want that more than you want the total Jesus. You want that more than the parts of God's character and actions that challenge you to like, maybe God in some ways was more traditional than I would like him to be, you know, by the way we'd set this out. Maybe God in some ways is more liberal and generous than in some ways we want him to be. And so against that, against giving God part and keeping part or only letting part of God in, just the big idea here is, is this, I, I just hear it like this, and this is what I pray. God, I want all of you in all of me. And yes, I can no sooner contain that than a ball jar can hold the Pacific Ocean, But you can literally give your life over to say, I want all of you 
in all of me his fullness. And these are his prayer requests. Be strengthened by the Spirit's power, not by formulas, not by reading a book, not by church attendance and just spiritual disciplines, which are important and have a place, but literally be strengthened by the personal presence of the Spirit of God within you. Know the love of Christ more and more. Explore it more and more. Meditate, it, meditate on it more and more. And then hear, God, I want all of you in all of me. Now, look at this reassurance. This is point three, the reassurance of Paul's prayer. Like, how do I know that God's actually going to do Like, I'm praying for his power. I don't feel like I'm experiencing his power. I'm praying to understand his love, and I just don't get it. Or I'm praying for his fullness, but like, what would that feel like? I don't feel like that's happening. Here's his reassurance, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to it's his power at work within us. And that's his reassurance. He's saying, because you have the personal presence of the indwelling spirit of God, you are his temple. He's not going anywhere. Because you have that, he says, you are able, God is able to do super abundantly more than you ask or imagine. And I want you to look at these superlatives like this. Like I never really thought about it this way. And there was one commentary did this. It's like, what can God do in my life? What can God do in your life? What we ask all that we ask, all that we ask or imagine, more than all that we ask or imagine, more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. And then where Paul actually lands is far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. So he literally starts with this Greek word parasos, which means abundantly, excessively, superfluously, that's the base word. And he's like, but parasos isn't good enough to express what I'm trying to say. So he makes it ekparasos, and then he actually makes it hyper ekparasos. So we've talked in this series about how Paul likes to make up words to express how important something is or how grand or glorious something is. And here he's doing that again. He's making up a word that literally means there's this crazy over-the-top, out-of-this-world superabundance that God is able to do in your life anything that you ask him for, but also just things that you're barely starting to imagine and maybe not working up the courage to ask him for. He's like, that's what God is actually up to, our, up to in our lives, even when we can't see it. And one of my prayers for you all, one of my prayers for my family is like, God, open our eyes to see how you are doing this, where you are doing this. Because very often we can be like, I prayed for this specific thing and not only did you not do far more abundantly than I asked or imagined with that specific thing, you did less. And that can kind of set your tone with God of like, I just don't see how you're doing this. And we'll circle back to this momentarily about like, how does this actually work when we're praying? All right. Um, the result of Paul's prayer, point four, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. So what is the result of Paul praying this prayer for other believers? He's saying God gets glory, number one, in and through the church, and number two, in and through the work of Jesus. I want to point out, like, our prayers don't add 
glory to Jesus. It's not like he's deficient in some way. And when we pray a certain way, or we pray enough and God does something in our life, it like adds, it makes that up. And then God gets glory. The idea here is not adding glory to God. It is our, our prayers and then the way God's working with us. It recognizes and exalts and draws attention to the glory that's already there. So many of you know I love sports. My family probably hates that I do this all the time. It's like you turn on Sports Center and you're watching, you know, like top 10. And, and top 10, by the way, on Sports Center is, you know, it's glorifying those athletes, but it is not adding glory to the athletes. It is simply highlighting and recognizing the glory that's already there because, I mean, with Sports Center, it's like the next morning. So the event has already happened, that play has already happened. But I'll be sitting there watching something, I'll be like, oh my word, did you see that catch that Justin Jefferson had? on the, like the one-handed, like leaning back. Like, and I was like, the whole family has to stop and come in here and watch this on the TV. It's like bringing glory to. Or did you see Nazem Kadri's game-clinching goal, game four overtime of the World, World Cup, Stanley Cup finals? World Cup started this morning. It's like they don't even know it's in the goal. It just happened so fast and it's in the goal and nobody called it a goal. And I was like, wait, you got to see this and let's, let's slow it down and like watch, watch how he tucks it up under the goalie's arm, like right through here, but it's like here and what are we doing? We are not adding glory to these athletes. We are celebrating the glory that's there. And I think this is the picture of how God is working that when we get his supernatural power on the interior of our lives and we are knowing his love more and more and we're inviting him, God, I want all of you in all of me. And then God sees it and then other people see it, whether they're believers or not yet Christians, or even just people that like, I don't want anything to do with God. And then he's like, in, in chapters we've seen before, it's like the angels and the devils see this stuff. And what is it doing? It's all saying, do you see the magnitude of the splendor and the beauty and the power and the love that God has for his people? And again, it's like that web telescope that you're like, the, the web telescope is not creating these images. It's merely capturing and sharing what we cannot see with the naked eye. And I want to live my life that way where it's like, maybe others are not seeing what God is up to in their lives, but I want to capture that and like zoom in on it and expand it and say, do you see what God is doing to be glorified? Yes, through your life. As you seek to follow him imperfectly. So that's the result of Paul's prayer. And then I'll close with this, the response. There are a couple of just practical, I hope gospel-driven responses to what Paul's praying here, both in his requests, but also in his benediction to him be glory in the church. Um, number one, actively surrender your life to God's presence within you. Actively surrender. You know, as we, we sang a song earlier, and I know, like, this has happened to fall today, but, like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And some people love that. It's like, that's my favorite song. And other people are like, I hate that song because it's theologically incorrect because we don't invite Holy Spirit into atmospheres. And we just, okay, don't miss the point, which is the Holy Spirit is present. Let me make that clear. If you're a follower of Jesus by faith, the Spirit of God is unchangeably present within you. We don't have to sit here and plead with him to come. 
We're not like, God, would you please? I mean, other people have your spirit. I don't. Would you come as I sing this particular song? Like, that's not how it works. He's present. But, but very often I think we're not present with him or we're not surrendered to him. And so it's like he's there, but these other things have pushed him to the side. And even the scriptures make it very clear there's a big difference between being indwelt with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. Because Paul actually does teach us pray for and, and work for, not in a way that earns it, but in a way that surrenders to it. But, but pray and work for the filling of God in your life. We're like, God, I want you to have every nook and cranny turned over to you. God wants us to experience and to rely on his power, not other things. And, and functionally, I think what we do sometimes is we unplug from the Spirit's power, even though he's there, and we go plug into another power. And it's like, I mean, sometimes the, like the breaker in my garage trips, and I'll go plug like a hybrid vehicle in and try to recharge it. And you don't even pay attention to the fact that a little red light's on the GFI, it's tripped. And so you're, you're plugged in. You go away for like all night and you come back to the car in the morning and it's dead because you've plugged into something that is not actually re-empowering it. We can functionally do that with God where there's a call here of God, I'm gonna, with this decision, I'm going to this meeting. I have to have this difficult conversation with this friend or this family member, or I'm just about to dig into your word and I'm, as Paul said earlier, like, I'm, I'm just not feeling it today. But over and over again, we can say, God, I'm, I'm functionally relying on your power right now, your strength for this decision, for my reaction to something, for getting through this trial in a way that is honoring to you and it brings me joy. As I said, God wants us rooted and grounded in his love. But what happens if we're like not fully surrendered, but we're seeking stability and joy from other people, other things. It'd be like bringing another woman to bed. And when she's offended, as she rightfully would be, me just being like, well, I don't understand the big deal. Like, I, I like your love. I want your love. This is not enough. Like, I'm trying to supplement your love. And, and functionally, we're doing the same thing with God sometimes. Where it's, we're, we're like, it's not like I want you out of my life. It's just that your love is not enough for me. And so we're doing this adulterous thing with God sometimes, even as followers of Jesus, where it's like, I, I want your love plus. Because your love is not sufficient for me. Your love is not getting me through. And I'm just saying, Paul is in this prayer calling us to recognize, where am I not fully surrendered to fully desiring the love of God, believing that it is enough. And then turning that over to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to surrender that area. I want to surrender that decision. I want to surrender that reaction. I want to surrender that habit so that you have strength in that place in my life as well. Second application is explore the love of Christ in community with others. I want to go back to this detail that I skipped in verse 18. You notice he says, we're called to comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. And what he's saying is your, your sanctification, your growth in Christ's likeness, your ability to understand and fathom and apply different dimensions and aspects and moments of Christ's love for you, it's a group project. I mean, yes, have your quiet time on your own, like you 
digging into God and surrendering to God, but also come together in community because we are meant to learn from each other. As Paul was saying, as you see someone struggling, but you see God meeting them in that place, that's showing you more about the love of God than just if you're doing life on your own. Or if you're the one struggling and God meets you in that place by sending friends to meet you in that place, and they're like his hands and feet, and they're tangibly like, hey, we're praying for you. And we, they check back in. How are you doing? I'm praying for you today. You're like, I'm understanding more about the love of Christ that he would put these other people in my life to help me do this. I think another way that we practically experience the love of Jesus in community with other people is just the reality that community is hard. Like sometimes your family's hard, your parents, your kids, your like a spouse, a, a close friend, a coworker, other people in the church, like our relationships are messy. And when we dig into Christ and find a resiliency and a faithfulness to our community of faith, rather than just like, oh, it's hard, or this person annoys me, or this person offended me, so I'm going to go find something different. I'm going to go to a different church, different small group. You know, when we're kind of pressed in ourselves to be like, yeah, that was hard. This person challenges me to love them, but I see how God loves them, and so I'm going to fight for that resiliency in our human relationships within the church. Well, what we're doing is we're exploring the love of Christ in community with others. We're learning a lot more on a more advanced track about the love of Jesus than if we're just trying to do, like, no, just me and Jesus. So explore the love of Christ in community with others. Then finally, pray bold prayers that make much of God. That's what this is really about. I want you to think for a moment, what, what motivates you to pray? If you were like Paul and you're writing verse 1, and maybe you get off on that rabbit trail, but you come back to it in verse 14. And you're like, for this reason, I pray. What is the reason or what are the reasons? You ever thought about that? Like, what, what motivates you? What moves you to pray when you pray? I think some of it is just like habit. Like, well, we pray before meals. What, what moved you to do that? It's just a habit. It's a good habit. It's not a bad habit. I'm not against it. It's just I, I didn't really think about the motive. And I think if, if I'm honest, a lot of times what motivates me to pray is simply necessity. Like this new challenge comes along, this new decision comes along, and sometimes that instinct is like, I'll go as far as I can on my own with my own resources or what I understand about this. And then sometimes God in his grace just doesn't let you get there. And you're like, help and instead of that help being our first instinct, sometimes it's the last. We've exhausted everything else and we realize we need help. Um, again, it's, it's not wrong to pray out of necessity. But it, it would be tragic if a human relationship was that way where it's like, I, I don't ever talk to you unless I need something from you. I think another thing that, that James, the apostle, suggests is that we just pray for things that he says it this way. We, we want to consume with our own desires. It's just like, I just want this stuff. Like I have desires and wants and appetites and affections and I, I pray to God and I'm like, give me the stuff that I want. And what's sad is we take verse 20 sometimes and we tack that onto those kinds of prayers. It's like, I just want, I just want this. Um, John Christ, the comedian, some of you have heard this. He has this whole, he has this whole segment of comedy that he does around, I ain't praying for that. Some of you heard this where he's just like, people come and they're like, hey, um, 
I've got this jujitsu competition this afternoon and I made it to the final. And so would you pray that I just kick this other person's head in? And he's like, no, I ain't praying for that. Like, how do you pray for that? Like, he's like, prayer is for other stuff. And, you know, he's, he's treating with comedy, but I, but I think there's a real thing that he's pushing on there where very often what motivates our prayers is like, I want to look good or I want to have more stuff or I want life to be just easier just for the sake of being easier and more pleasurable. And then we tack on verse 20. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that I can ask or imagine. And it's like this name it and claim it thing. But what I want you to see in closing is Paul is not using verse 20 as this name it and claim it. Whatever you can imagine, God wants to do way more in that exact same direction or trajectory as what you're praying. The whole context here suggests the gospel itself has motivated Paul to pray really big prayers. Like, God, would you take these natural enemies, these Jews and these Gentiles who hate each other and don't want to do life together, and by your resurrecting, reconciling power at work in them, would you not only make them one, but help them to experience that oneness in true community? Would you do that for them? And what you notice about Paul's big audacious prayers is that if God answers them, Jesus gets a lot of glory. People are like, whoa, how did, how did those people get together with those people in community where they genuinely love and trust and rely on each other and work together instead of pulling away from each other or pulling against each other? And so this is the kind of prayer that God or that, that Paul is teaching us to pray. Prayers that, if answered, would bring God glory. Prayers that, if answered, would be fundamentally transformative and renewing in people's hearts and in our city. Do you pray big, audacious prayers like that? And I would go back to God wants to do, he's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine and say, am I praying the kind of prayers that if God did far more abundantly than I can ask or imagine, the people around me would experience shalom. They would experience joy. They would be touched by the transformative love and grace of God. Let's pray.